What's up? It's Cole Hatter. You're listening to the Dream Catchers Show with John Bourgeois. This is the Dream Catchers Show. Each week, we bring you strategies from dream catchers from around the world to help you stop just chasing your dreams and start catching them. Now, turn up the volume and get ready for another amazing episode with your host, John Bourgeois. Welcome to another episode of the Dream Catcher Show. Dream Catchers, I need you to listen up real quick. Uh, this episode is going to be amazing, so I want you to do whatever you can to turn off the distractions. You want to grab a pen and a piece of paper, sit down, because you're about to go on an amazing ride. Today, we have a serial entrepreneur, a real estate investor, the founder of Thrive, a coach, a mentor, a husband, a father. Literally, we have Cole on the show with us. Man, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, bro. Looking forward to hanging with you and chatting. Absolutely. Well, guys, I want to kind of, and I know we don't generally do this, but I want to kind of give you a rundown. Cole's story, you may or may not know it, but his story is remarkable and it's also inspiring as well. And so I'm excited to really dive into some of the story and why he does what he does. Because what you're going to hear is he's not had that that A to B success story of it was just one ride and it took him the, the entire way. You're going to hear a lot of the bumps, a lot of the twists, the turns. And like I said, I'm excited for this. So Cole, would you mind going ahead and telling our dream catchers, obviously I know your story, but would you mind telling our dream catchers kind of where you grew up, what that looked like and giving a rundown like that? Sure. I grew up in Southern California in Orange County, uh, which is where I live currently. Um, I, uh, growing up, had a pretty traditional childhood, um, was born and incredibly blessed to be born to a mother and father who 52 years later are still together, still married, still happy. Um, so I had both mom and dad in the house who gave me the platform, the support, the encouragement and the belief, the verbal belief that I could go on to do anything I wanted that as a parent now I see in hindsight was so important to the foundations of my own self-concept mm. that eventually manifested into, you know, what success I've had today. It's that underlying foundation was a huge part of it. And so uh, I didn't pick which family to be born to, but luckily God decided to give me uh, the home I was raised in. So no, no real childhood traumas. I just uh, played sports. I was a, a star athlete. That was all I cared about. Um, and then in about junior high was when I got to the age of, huh, I need to start thinking about what I want to do when I grow up someday uh, and ended up choosing firefighting. Uh, in high school, I went to evening classes in a junior college and weekend classes at a junior college. So I was doing daytime high school, evening college uh, to do all my prerequisites so that right when I graduated high school, I actually went right into an academy like we were just talking about up in Seattle right before we yep. pressed record. And so in order to get into those academies, you needed to have done all of your prerequisites. I'd already done that. So that gave me an edge over my peers that were graduating and beginning their um, education process. I had already completed mine, became a firefighter. Everything was awesome. Uh, and then two years into that career, got into a really bad car accident where I was ejected out of the car as it was flipping on the freeway. Uh, they estimated we were going about 80 miles an hour when the car started to flip. So uh, when you hit the pavement at that speed, you know, it's, you, you get pretty hurt. So I actually had to be airlifted from 
the scene of the accident and a helicopter to the hospital. Uh, fast forward, obviously I survived, uh, but I was in a wheelchair temporarily. I had to learn how to walk again. I had a traumatic brain injury. And so at that point, firefighting was out and the mm -hmm. car accident happened off duty. So although the fire department loves me uh, and wants to support me, uh, if you're not injured at work, it's kind of like your own fault, right? Which mm. even though I wasn't the driver of the vehicle, I was a passenger and we didn't cause the accident, someone else did. It was a career ender for me. Uh, now, fast forward, I am healthy and I could have gone back to firefighting maybe two yep. or so years later. Uh, mm -hmm. But in that down season of having to move back into my mom and dad's house because I was so hurt, I couldn't even like immediately after the accident for those first few months, I couldn't even take myself to the toilet. Like y'all can use your imaginations. I had to have friends and family members like carry me to the bathtub and the toilet and stuff like that. So it was, it was a really bad accident. Um, but it was in that season of uncertainty that I didn't know that I would heal enough to be a firefighter or physically well enough for what career options I would even have in my future. And I decided, dude, I just need to know, I need to learn how to make money. I don't know that if I'm in a wheelchair the rest of my life, which by the way, they, they, they saw through x-rays and MRIs that, that I had a, a bruise on my spinal cord, that it wasn't okay. severed. So there was high hopes that I would have a full recovery, but you never know. Maybe I only got 80% mobility back. Right. And so with all that uncertainty, I had no idea what career options were even available to me. So that's where I said, screw it. I'll just be an entrepreneur. I'm just going to figure out how to make money for myself by myself. And, and that was really the beginning there. And the first company I started was a real estate investment company. That was 15 years ago. I still own it to this day. Uh, got my butt kicked on the recession, but um, <laughs> survived barely. Yeah. And then on the back end of the recession is where I've created, you know, all, almost all my wealth. Uh, and then, uh, you know, along the way of this 15 year entrepreneurial journey, have started a handful of other businesses as well. And so that right there was, you know, my whole life story condensed down in a few minutes. But um, Absolutely. What, what put me where I am today, though, was that car accident. And out of necessity of needing to learn how to understand economics and understand how to see an opportunity in the marketplace, capitalize on it, monetize it, and be in business, uh, that was something that came out of necessity. And then uh, just to kind of close the loop, even once I healed well enough that I could have returned to the fire department, I would have had to have, you know, done physical agility tests and I would have had to have done what I could have done. But um, I mean, at that point I was making in months more than I was making in my year as a as entry level firefighter, you're making $42,000 a year. I was having months better than that. And so I was like, you know, uh, no offense to the fire department, but the type of impact I want to make in the world, I can make without the fire department through just using my business as the vehicle to put myself in a position to just really impact people how I want to. So that's the story, I bro. That. I love that. What made you pick up firefighting? Like what was the thing about that that made you go, I want to I do that initially? So God put it on my heart early to just want to help people. I grew up in a faith-based family, uh, living in Orange County. I'm only about two hours from the uh, Mexico border. And so my parents throughout my childhood would take weekend trips with our church down to Tijuana, Rosarito, Ensenada, one of those like border cities. And we would spend the day or the weekend giving back. And at about 13, 14, when I started evaluating what career path I wanted to go down, I knew that in all my years of wisdom, right, those 13, 14 years, the things that felt the best when I was quote unquote working were those times that we partnered with the church and gave back. So I was like, you know, I don't want to go sit at someone's desk. I'm way too hyperactive and don't have the attention span to stare at a computer screen all day. Like, what do I want to do? I was like, well, helping people feels good. Like feeding those kids down in Mexico felt good. How can I do a career where I'm helping people? So I thought about being a doctor. Mm. You're obviously paid well to help people. I thought about joining our military. I thought about being a police officer. And then firefighting is what made the most sense to me. If I can save lives, play with fire, 
uh, you know, work eight days a month, 24 hour shifts, but eight days a month have 22 off, um, all the benefits and all that stuff. I was like, yeah, that's for me. So that's, that's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah, so it's that funny that it. you mentioned that because I pursued a doctorate. I wanted to be a doctor for the exact same reason. I wanted to be able to help people. And I figured that's probably the best way to be able to help somebody is do exactly that. And so it's funny that you looked at firefighting as exactly a way for you to help people and be able to have adventure while you were doing it. Yep. And, and exactly. And so, and to be paid for it so I can make a living helping people. Right. And then um, uh, I, again, pivoted into entrepreneurism out of a car accident, right. As a result. And uh, now, uh, now that's what my businesses get to do. So, uh, you know, people ask, do you miss firefighting? At this point, it's been so long. But what I did miss was the adrenaline, was, you know, mm -hmm. the bell going off for a car accident or a fire or whatever it is. You know, you, you got that adrenaline rush. I also miss the brotherhood of, of having a community of people that you know would die for you in a second. And everyone says, oh, I'd die for you. But, like, you know they would. Um, I, miss, I miss that component of it. I certainly don't miss the politics. Um, firefighting has changed quite a bit uh, since, you know, I was – shoot, when I was in junior high, that was like 20 years ago, right? So in the last mm -hmm. 20 years, when I first picked it as a career, it is a very different uh, career now. And so, um, you know, I don't miss the helping people aspect because I get to do it in a whole different way now with my business. So just the brotherhood and the, and the rush is, is really all I miss. And if you wouldn't mind going into a little bit more of your story, when you got into that when you got into that car accident, Cole, it wasn't just you by yourself heading over to Vegas, correct? Yeah, no, there's three of us. It was me, Steve, and Matt. The three of us were yeah. headed over there. Those are your best friends, right? Best friends in the world. Yeah. What Do you mind going into that part of the story as well? No, not at all. So, so Steve was driving. Matt was in the passenger seat. I was in the back seat of a uh, Toyota 4Runner. It's a little SUV. And, um, you know, uh, the police report said that a car – turned in our lane we were in their blind spot and made contact with us which caused us a flip um and then the witnesses also reported that uh they pulled over and when they saw my body steve's body and all that they got back in their car and left the scene of the accident so that's that's some awesome karma for them but mm -hmm. um both steve and i rejected matt was not matt was rushed back to the hospital in an ambulance because he was stable uh, Steve and I were not stable. Um, you know, I was bleeding out of my eyes, my ears, my nose, my mouth. Like I was, I was really hurt. And so, uh, my so because of my traumatic brain injury, when your when your arm swells, like it's skin, you, your arm can blow up like a balloon. When your brain is swelling, because it's in a skull, uh, it has nowhere to go. And so, as it was bleeding and swelling, that's why it comes out your ears, out your eyes. So, oh wow, it was it was a big yeah. And then obviously my lower body wasn't working at all because of the bruise on my spinal cord from basically my waist down was temporarily paralyzed. So here I am, bleeding everywhere. And then of course, uh, you know, when you hit the pavement going eighty, you lose a lot of skin. So I'm bleeding everywhere and I'm super messed up. Um, and so they throw Steve and I in the helicopter, of course, and um, I survived. Steve didn't. So mm. uh, Steve's internal injuries. Um, were were significant enough that that in the ER uh, the surgeons weren't able to to save mm -hmm. him uh, like they were able to save me and then so again Matt being stable really banged up he had a concussion he had to get stitches uh, but but he was relatively stable um, but then I lost Steve and so so that was obviously a huge a huge grief of losing Steve but then also guilt of having survived um, mm -hmm. of being like why me not him and just all of this, the guilt and doubt and all the stuff that comes with that was pretty brutal.
you you then had to go on your own recovery from both the guilt but also like you're now you're an active energetic the whole reason why you got into the firefighting department was so that you could be somebody that experienced that energy and be able to help people you're now in a wheelchair what was that journey like um so to be completely honest, I was still on such heavy pain meds and also my brain was still not really working. I don't remember three, like, I don't remember oh, wow, most that's of right. the following three months. So huh. I don't remember an entire week before the accident, uh, like the whole week prior to the accident. I don't remember any of like the, the month directly following the accident. I remember none of, and then, you know, in my, in like week five and beyond, it's really sketchy. So to be completely honest, I don't even remember most of it. Uh, the, the accident happened on September 10th. I don't really remembering much until like the week before Halloween, like six, seven weeks later. Uh, so to be honest, being in a wheelchair, um, I'll, I'll tell you overall, it's, it sucked not having freedom. I, I was living on my own. I was a firefighter. I had my whole career, right? I was like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a big boy, left mom and dad's house, was out there paying my bills. <laughs> yeah. I, I had to move back into mom and dad's house. I lost my career and I lost my freedom. Like mom and dad had to carry me to the toilet. Right. So it's like, that was the biggest shock. Wasn't even just the wheelchair itself, but to like, you know, be a 21 year old man out on my own, working a career, paying my bills, having my independence to not even being able to feed myself right after the accident. uh, That was the biggest shock. And then uh, obviously the guilt of knowing that Steve was gone and I wasn't and the grief of knowing that I'd never see him again. That's, that's really all I remember about it. Um, and then, uh, you know, I start to get memories back mid October to late October. And then, you know, as my brain continued to heal, the memories come back and back. Yeah. And then that's not the end of like the story, right? You then got into, it was an ATV accident that you got into as well? Sort of. So Matt, the other survivor of the accident, um, he also, uh, you know, was in the same emotional place I was in of having lost our best friend. So the three of us were the three amigos. We were all best friends in like that trifecta. So did you guys grow up together? uh, Steve and I did. Matt came into the scene and a little bit later uh, in high school, but uh, those last four years we were- the three amigos. Okay. Um, and so Matt and I having lost Steve again, for me, a childhood friend for Matt, uh, a teenage best friend. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew what he was going through. So, so long story short by about the first week or so of November, I had just graduated out of my wheelchair and onto crutches. And to celebrate that he wanted to go ride dirt bikes. And I was like, dude, you're nuts. And he's like, well, I can't walk. And he's like, that's the point. You sit on a, <laughs> you, you're sitting in your wheelchair, your arms work, sit on a motorcycle. Like he was, he saw me slipping into such a deep depression that yeah. he was just trying to get me to leave my parents' house. Like I didn't want people to come visit because I didn't want people feeling sorry for me because at my, like, I was like, I'm alive. Steve died. So I was almost, again, I was in an unhealthy place, but I was almost mm-hmm. irritated at the people that wanted to be there for me because I'm like, I'm here. Steve died. Like go visit his mom and dad. Don't, don't come visit me and feel sorry for me. I'm, I'm alive. And mm. so I didn't want people coming over to see me because again, when you go through something like this, of course your friends and family want to like come just be there to support you. And I was like, get out of here, leave me alone. Stop trying to make a big deal about me. I'm alive. Um, Mm. And so I wanted to be alone and I wasn't leaving. So Matt's like, let's go. Long story short, I agreed. We threw the dirt bike or he put the dirt bikes in the back of his truck, um, loaded up and he and I drove out to the desert together. And uh, yeah, we ended up falling into an abandoned mine shaft. So Again, it sounds crazy that I just got out of a wheelchair, but the 
idea was to putt around real slow. He was just trying to break the pattern of me just sitting at my parents' house in depression. And dirt mm-hmm. bike riding was one of our favorite things we used to do. So we're out there putting around real slow, taking it easy. And there was an unmarked mine shaft, which is essentially just a hole in the desert. And you don't see it until the last possible second. And because we were going maybe 20, 30 miles an hour, you fall in it. And so uh, one of the rules in dirt biking is you never follow right in the path of the buddy in front of you. Because if he were to fall, you would run him over. So you stay mm-hmm. to the left or the right. Again, heaven forbid, in the, as you're riding a trail together, uh, you don't want to run over your friend. And so, mm-hmm. uh, so I was maybe a foot and a half to the left of where Matt was. He fell in. I fell in right behind him, but I was able to reach out and grab a bush about the size of a basketball and hang there and just look down in a complete darkness. You know, I climbed out. I'm yelling down the hole. He's not answering. Ended up calling 911. Long story short, uh, the mine shaft was 780 feet deep. Matt fell all the way to the bottom and he didn't survive. So here's Steve, Matt, and I in a car accident on September 10th. Matt and I survived. Steve didn't. That same Matt, November 14th, 66 days later, we fell into a mine shaft. I survived. Matt didn't. So to lose your two best friends in 66 days would screw up anybody. But Mm -hmm. I was in both accidents. Um, The surgeon that worked on me when I arrived to the hospital looked me in the face and said, you should not have survived with your injuries. Like you, he literally pointed up and said, someone up there must have a plan for you because you shouldn't be alive. Hmm. So I had those words in my mind thinking that like I had cheated death. And then if I would have been six more inches to the right, I wouldn't have been able to reach that bush and Matt and I both would have fallen to the bottom. So, so I had these near-death experiences where I'm now the only survivor. And as you can imagine, here we go all over again. I'm still grieving Steve. I'm still feeling guilty about Steve. And now I lose Matt, hmm. where now the grief is 10 times worse and the guilt is 10 times worse. It was, it was a really, really bad time for me. Um, and, you know, I if I could do it all over again, of course I would keep Steve and Matt, right? Mm, Of course. I I would avoid that. But um, I can say with confidence that I am who I am today because of the decisions I made following those accidents. Um, And so again, I'm not going to say I'm glad it happened. No way. Um, But a lot of really good has come from the motivation those experiences gave me. And uh, I'm doing a lot of things I would have never done with my life to honor Steve and Matt because I I made Mm -hmm. them a promise um, you know, I just, uh, as about a month or so after Matt had passed about three months after Steve, I just looked up and said, like, I don't know why I'm here and you guys aren't, but like, I'm going to make my life matter and I'm going to do things bigger than I ever thought. So that when I get to see them again in heaven, I can point back down to my life and say, I used every gift, every opportunity, every moment, every talent. I didn't keep anything for myself. I laid it all down there. Uh, and I did it for you guys. And so hopefully I do enough in my life. That's big enough for the three of us in heaven. I love that. And, 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 like Cole, like was that because I know that you would have had to have been in a dark place when all that happened, right? Sixty-six days later, that's an insane time frame to lose one of your loved ones. To lose two of them back to back is got to be painful and on a level that most of us don't even understand. Right. I'm surprised that you were able to come out of that depression even three months later and be able to say, no, I'm gonna do something. What, was it your faith? Was it your drive to build a legacy for them? Like, what was it that really helped you on that? Um, yeah, so the foundation of my faith, um, you know, a lot of people come to these T's in the road and they go one of two directions. Uh, they can blame God, which mm-hmm. is what I did initially. Okay. And that can be their reason to leave the church, leave their faith and say, oh, 
uh, you know, God doesn't exist because this wouldn't happen. Or if he does, he sucks for letting this happen. And that's exactly what I thought. Um, immediately after losing Matt, I was just like done. Um, but then I, 30 days later, so I lost Matt on, on November 14th on December 18th was when I had my aha moment. And so, um, and so I realized that, um, that, that I could continue to be a victim and blame God and feel sorry for myself. And, uh, you know, you know, the world understood my circumstances. So they were letting me feel sorry for myself and, uh, I just realized that that was no way to honor them. And I just mm. realized that like, if, if I had been the one to die and one of them had survived and I'm up in heaven watching one of them just sit around drinking and feeling sorry for themselves and just all the crap I was doing of like victimization. Um, I realized that that would be like the ultimate slap in the face. So that's where mm. I, in an instant, in a moment, uh, decided that I'm not going to do that. And that instead of being a victim, this hurts. I didn't pick it. I don't want it. I wish I could take it away, but I can't. It happened. It's real. This isn't a bad dream that I'm going to wake up from. This is my life. Mm. And I can either A, continue to be a victim, take pills, drink alcohol, throw my life away, be a druggie or an alcoholic or worse, and someday accidentally overdose on too many pills or whatever it is. Or I can use this as an excuse to push myself in ways I never thought I ever would and to make a bigger difference in the world than I ever thought possible. And it was pretty evident that if I got to ask Steve or Math which way they would want me to go to honor their memories, it was go make the world a better place. And so yeah, absolutely. I, I like took it as a, as a, um, I don't want to say as a burden on my shoulders, but like I, I decided to assign myself to now live a more intentional purpose driven life uh, as a result of having escaped death twice to just be grateful for the second and then third chance I had to live but then also to honor their lives uh, by being gone. And so that's, that, that was the genesis of my turnaround. Um, and then to, to answer your question, uh, the church was there. That was a huge mm-hmm. part. I leaned heavy into my faith um, yeah. after, after those two accidents of just like um, just the church community rallying around me. But then in addition, the um, just, just what, what truths I believe that the Bible talks about and that, that God promises. And so you know, respecting that many of your audience may have my same viewpoints on, on faith or, or different. I'll just say that, um, that that was a huge part that like, that was the decisions I was making, the conversations I was having, the people I was around, it was like, what got me through it. But like the underlying, not giving up and knowing that like, this is my one shot at life. And I can, you know, th- this sucked, but I've got, who knows, another 60 years left to live at that point. And am I really going to throw it all away and then spend eternity in heaven having wasted my entire life? Or am I going to do something about it? So that, that understanding of, of what I believe truth is about where we come from and what we're supposed to do and who God is and all that stuff was the underlying foundation of, of me deciding to, to make good out of bad. Man. And I love the fact that you found, even with all of that, you found a reason why to keep going and you pulled on that. And the whole notion about what you were talking about of deciding not to be the victim, but actually leaving a legacy for not just yourself, not just your family, but also for them as well is remarkable. Yeah. How did you get into, how did you get into real estate? Like I know um, it was before the recession, but how did you get into it? Yeah. So while I was living at my parents' house, they're next door neighbors. My parents did well in corporate America. Um, well, that's not true. My dad was in corporate America. My mom was in um, social worker. So she was, you know, helping kids, but they had done well enough that they lived in a beautiful home in a beautiful area. The next door neighbors had nice cars, nice home, 
Um, and uh, one day in the neighborhood, I just asked him what they did. And the, the woman said that she was a realtor and the husband was a real estate investor. So I was like, huh, real estate. And then as I continued to look around and research as best I could from my limited network and, and perspective, it seemed like everybody did real estate. That wasn't their career necessarily, even like plastic surgeons that make a lot of money doing facelifts and boob jobs or whatever it is. The, those people are running their private practice as plastic surgeons, but then buying yeah. real estate. They're, yeah. they're buying the office building that their private practice is in. And then all of the rest of the building is rented out to people paying them rent. Like everywhere I looked, tech entrepreneurs. I met a tech guy. He made a ton of money in the dot-com. So this is now 2005. This yep. guy had made a ton of money in the dot-com bubble of 1998. And it's like, well, what do you do now that you're not in tech? Real estate. So it's like, man, they either make all their money in real estate or they stick all their money in real estate. <laughs> There's something about real estate that all rich people have in common. Yes. So I want to get rich. I'm going to do real estate. And that was literally the due diligence. I didn't like think about it anymore. I was like, I can't find a rich person that doesn't do real estate in some capacity. I'm going to do real estate. And that was it. That was the deciding factor. And that was 15 years ago. And here we are. And you started, what was it? 2007, 2008, 2005. Okay. 2005 with real estate. So I got the tail end of that frothy upswing in the you know 2000s where money was very loose. I mean, in order to qualify for a loan, all you had to have was a heart beating in your chest. Like you had to be able to have warm skin and people would give you money. So it was, it was unrealistically easy. The 2005, yeah. six in the beginning of 2007, my dad and I were making so much money. We thought we were special. Yeah. I was like, dude, we're, we're crushing it. We're the best entrepreneurs. And then 2008 came and we realized, Oh dang, we were just in the right place at the right time. So had to actually learn how to invest in real estate, you know, Absolutely. lost almost everything in the recession and then rebuilt ourselves from the ground up 2011. Yeah. And back when you first started in real estate, it was like, it was like when, if any dream catchers don't know you basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, Cole, like you could basically slap some paint on a house, go ahead and do a, a quick remodel on it. And it was up a hundred to 200. Yes. But even crazier than that, I could buy a house. And then the week after start getting solicited from people that already want to buy it for me for like 80,000 more than I just paid for, for doing nothing. Wow. Like, buy a house file your construction permits with the county to wait to start your demo to go ahead and start your renovation process. Yeah. And in that five, six day period that you now own it, but haven't started tearing it apart, you have other people that are like, oh, we're pissed that we didn't get this one. I'll give you 80,000 more for it today. It's like, basically it's like buy a house, count to 10 and sell it for an $80,000 profit. <laughs> so it's like, but, but yeah, I mean, we're talking in Orange County specifically, because I'm sure yeah. your audience is everywhere. Uh, you know, a, a small little track home right now sells for like a million dollars. I just sold a uh, 1,991 square foot house on a 6,500 6, square foot lot, track home, nothing custom, never, nothing special for 1,375,000. That's the last house we just saw, 1.375. For a 1,991 square foot house on a 6,500 yeah. square foot lot, no view, nothing special, just a house in the middle of Orange County. And so, because that's where our price points are, it's 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 very common to be making a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars per flip. Um, but I mean, we'd even get eighty plus thousand dollars above what we just paid for for doing nothing. So, so that's what we thought real estate that's was. Remarkable. I remember telling my dad, "Why does anybody even go to school and like get a degree? Why does anyone even get a job? Bunch of idiots! All you got to do is just buy a house, take a nap, and make money. Like idiots." <laughs> um, and then two thousand and eight came, and then all of a sudden I realized, "Oh, dang! Like 
we were just in one of the times of American history in the mm -hmm. right place at the right time. It's not even like mm -hmm. that happens each cycle. That may never happen again. And I just happened yeah. to catch the last two, two years of it, um, which is good news, bad news. It's good news because I had instant success. It's bad news because again, this unrealistic expectation of what being a business owner is. It's like, oh, it's of easy. Course. You just sleep in until 10 a.m., go to the gym, uh, get around to doing some work around maybe one o'clock, wrap up by four o'clock, go catch the evening glass surfing. And that's it. Like bunch of idiots that go work 40 <laughs> hours a week. I had no idea. Were, were you, were you frivolously spending your money or were oh, you totally, frivolously yeah. so, dude, saving I was, it? I was between 22 and 25 years old making half million dollars a year net. So uh, yeah, I was a dumbass. I went out there and I bought a hundred thousand dollar wakeboarding boat. I bought a hundred thousand dollar Escalade, put it on rims, put five TVs in it. Cause four is not enough, right? I needed a, I needed a TV at every headrest plus the 10 inch drop down. And so I don't say that's <laughs> a brag, you do. but of course you do. You, you need that. Right. But and I don't say that to like, look cool. Just to answer your question. Yeah. I blew all the money because I didn't know what to do with it. Oh. I had no financial literacy. I, I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, started flipping houses, making big money, but I didn't know what to do with money. So it's actually called shedding wealth. Tony Robbins talks mm. about that where uh, because I had not experienced money, I didn't, I didn't grow up in poverty. I grew up blue collar, middle class. My dad was actually a construction worker in my childhood and then eventually joined corporate America where probably about my freshman year of high school, my dad started making real money. So, mm -hmm. you know, my high school life uh, at home looked a little different economically than my childhood didn't. By the way, I mean, I'm not talking, I'm never hungry, played sports and all that stuff, but my family always had just enough, if that makes sense. Mm. So, so here I am now having multiple six figures in a checking account dude, I had no idea what to do with that other than spend it. So mm -hmm. instead of investing it wisely and being smart with my money, I literally, I would call my buddies. I was like the coolest kid, right? I'd call three or four of my buddies, say, I just bought all of us flights to Vegas. Let's go, go out to Vegas. I'd put us up in a big hotel room and I'd give them all money. I'd be like, here's 500 for you. Here's 500 for you. And my buddies and I would just party because I was the only one that had money mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. Most of them were still at home with mom and dad. If not, they were like wrapping up college and and to get an all expense paid trip. It was, whole, it was fun. And I didn't want to go alone. So dude, I was just a total idiot. Uh, and then once the recession came, I lost it all. Cause I had no reserves. I, I, I was over leveraged. Um, you know, I take guys like Warren Buffett that says, uh, leverage everything. Don't use your money for anything. So I didn't buy cars. I only leased them. My Escalade lease was 1500 a month, but who gave a crap? I was making a hundred thousand a month. Right. Um, not every month. There was a couple of months we broke six figures. Uh, but still, um, and then all of a sudden when the income goes away, but your overhead's 25,000 a month, dude, I was like, I was like a 23 year old and my overhead was like 25 to 30 grand a month to just, that's not buying groceries or gas. That's just mm. paying for my stuff. Mm. Um, idiot. And then by the way, that's not business. Cause now my overhead's way more than that, but that's like employee salaries, payroll company. That was just me for my toys. I was burning like 25 <laughs> to 30 grand a month. Total idiot, total idiot. Learned my lesson this time around. I've done it very differently with the money I'm making now. Um, and again, I, I hope that that didn't come across as like, look how cool I was. That was look how stupid I was. Yeah. If I'd invested some of that financial liquidity more wisely, uh, my life today would look very, very different. Because what would have happened is I would have gone into the recession with cash. Mm -hmm. And instead of being broke in the recession, I would have been buying strip malls, apartments, homes. Yeah. Like, I would have bought everything at a discount because it was the recession. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I would have come out the back end right now, like, dude, today I'd be worth eight figures more than I am yep. if I had yep. money in the last recession. So yep. it was a lot of fun pops. pissing it away in Vegas, but wish, sure wish I would have bought some assets.
Yeah, because the bubble popped and you could have caught it when it was down. Typically, like just like surfing, you could have caught it before the wave decided to crash. You could have waited until the wave crashed and then go ahead and catch the next wave that's coming. Exactly what I'm doing right now. So yeah. I'm just building up uh, my liquidity currently, my access to capital, like all the stuff that I can to get my hands on money. And of course, for the sake of the general population i don't i don't want to see another recession or or correction but it's inevitable and mm-hmm. you know as of recording this you know people could be watching this years later but as of recording this we're we're in an election year we're we're currently our president is trump whether he gets reelected or we get a new president is kind of meaningless in the sense that we have cycles in this country we have economic cycles and we have been on a really long upswing and we are due for a correction so whether again keeping politics out of it whether trump gets a second term or whether he's replaced with one of the um, Democratic candidates currently, whoever takes office for these next four years, it's kind of like that game we played as a child of musical chairs where whenever the music stopped, whoever's, you know, whoever's doesn't have a chair, you're out. Yeah. Uh, the, the music's been playing for a long time. Mm. So that being said, you know, I, I want America to stay comfy and cozy for everybody, but it can't, it has to correct. Yep. And when it does, current people that are in the same position I was in that have over leveraged and gambled, they're going to lose and I feel bad for him, but this time I'm going to be the one that writes the check. I mean, bro, wow. bro to get rid of my Escalade, I, used, I had to use a website called swapalease.com where somebody else would just take over my lease and nobody wanted it. So to make an incentive, I had to give away 10 grand. So a person, a person came to me. <laughs> That's crazy. They took over my Escalade that I had put 30 grand of upgrades into. They took over my payments and I had to give him 10 grand to do it. Like that's how bad I was, but that's going to be me on the back end this time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm curious, do you think you were doing all of that because you still were suffering that pain from the, the accidents? Do you think that was one of the reasons or not at all? Maybe. I think, um, I don't know, maybe there, there was other evidence of that in my life, in my, in my private life. I think in business, I was just an idiot. I think I was just immature. I was in my early okay. 20s making more money than some Fortune 500 executives make. Um, mm-hmm. accidentally, by the way, that wasn't like earned. I mean, it was earned income, but it wasn't deserving income. I was just right place, right time. Right. So, so I think that it was just immaturity and not really understanding money uh, and just thinking that that would stay for the rest of my life. So I just partied mm-hmm. away. Um, mm-hmm. but like in my personal relationships, there was definitely, uh, even still to this day, you know, some, I don't want to say drawbacks, but, but some challenges that I had and faced still with, with going through what I went through. Yeah, of course. So now you you lose that all. What was that blow like? Because that could that would have probably been like horrible. You go from making six figures, or sometimes, well, not every month, but you're you you go from spending twenty to thirty k a month on expenses alone, and suddenly you're giving away ten thousand dollars and having somebody else take your lease for your Cadillac. Like that, I'm guessing was a massive blow to your ego. Yeah. Um, it, it was, um, but like I had other concerns at the time too. So it, it's hard to explain in a few words. Uh, it was pre social media, at least what it is today. So right now losing things is a whole lot more public. I can kind of quietly lose things in 2008 where now it's like, Hey Cole, I don't see you posting any of your cars anymore. Where are they? Hey Cole. <laughs> so, so, and, and even still like, I mean, I was just talking with my buddy, Danny, good buddy of mine. He's in my mastermind. Um, and you know, his business does about $40 million a year in revenue. Uh, he's, I think, 42, 43. And he was talking to me about how he went broke twice in his 30s. He's wow. a real entrepreneur. He, takes, he made millions of dollars in his 20s, 
went broke. Millions of dollars in his early 30s went broke. And then now tens of millions of dollars in his late 30s and early 40s. And so there's a, there's a part of those of us that are entrepreneurs willing to risk that mm -hmm. I could lose everything again. But why I emotionally don't feel like a loser is it was, it was a mistake. It was a miscalculation. It was risk that I shouldn't have taken. It's, you know, it's a hypothetical. It's, it's whatever it was, but it doesn't define me. And, and so mm -hmm. I think I've matured a lot in knowing that I wouldn't want to have to tell my kids we're moving out. I wouldn't want to lose everything I've worked for, sell art, sell cars. I wouldn't want that. It would suck. It'd be inconvenient. It would maybe be embarrassing. I don't know. But I know that I'm still going to have everything in my brain that's there yeah, now. Yeah, of course. I'm still going to have the relationships I have now. So it'll just be like a reset and then I'll just yeah. build it back. And I don't say yeah. that out of arrogance, but like with what I've learned and with who I know, if I lost it all, first of all, I wasn't proactive enough to pivot along the way, right? Uh, and, and I know that in hindsight, again, if I lost it all, knock on wood, that I'd be able to look back and see exactly the mistakes I made in, in not doing due diligence or over leveraging or, or whatever it is of not, not protecting my downside. I'll know what I did wrong, but I'm not going to have my brain wiped. I'm still going to know everything that made me a multimillionaire the first time and mm -hmm. kind of like Danny's journey, I'll just do it all over again, you know, mm -hmm. God willing, right? If I'm still, unless I'm incapacitated, I'm just, I'll, I'll start over again. And so, so to your point, um, it, it, it wasn't as big of like an emotional thing. It was more just a pain in the ass. It, yeah. There was a lot of legal stuff. There was other investors' monies and deals. Like it was, it was just a, a really irritating, slow pull off the bandaid one millimeter at a time process. Um, but it wasn't like me crying at night, feeling like a loser. It was, it was just more me being like, God, this is such a pain in the ass. Like I want this over so I could start again. Mm. And one of the reasons Cole, to go back to like the beginning part of your story, one of the reasons you got into firefighting was to be able to help people. You decide, no, I'm going to figure out a way to make money because of everything that's happened. Get into the real estate, right time, right place. Everything's going great. Bubble pops. Tell us like the next progression because Thrive came out of this next season and where you're at today came out of this next season. So what were the next things that you went ahead and did? Yeah. So, um, so I went broke and then, you know, right there at the end of, of kind of losing everything, I met this amazing girl. Uh, we started dating and I mean, you know, I, I was able to still support myself with what little bit of reserves I had, but I wasn't, I wasn't balling anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And so she and I started dating fast forward. That was 2008 uh, that she and I uh, met 2009. We started dating fast forward. Uh, she breaks up with me. And to your point earlier of, uh, do I think that I was kind of self-sabotage self myself financially because of the loss of Steve and Matt? No, but this relationship is the best example of that. Um, because I lost Steve and Matt and because how much that hurt, I swore to myself I would never let someone matter to me like that again in the wow. sense that I've, I've got my mom, my dad, my sister. Like there's people in there I can't do anything about, but I'm not going to add anyone else. And this girl who I was dating at the time went to Steve's funeral. She was friends with him. She saw me wheeled in in her wheelchair to that funeral, bandaged, head to toe, torn apart. Like she knew my story. And so when we first started dating, I was very transparent that I don't want to ever get married. And I don't want kids because I don't ever want a wife or children to die. And so if I don't have a wife or child, I'll never have to experience that type of loss. Huh. And when we first started dating, she's like, fine with me. Fast forward two years in that relationship. She basically asked me, hey, do you still feel the way? Like, you don't need to propose to me, but do you still feel the same way? And I said, yes. And then she said, okay, well, 
I do want marriage and kids someday. And if that's for sure not going to be you, then I don't want to fall more in love with you, have more memories with you or spend more time mm -hmm. with you. Like we have to end this so that I can go find the person that is going to be my husband and the father of my children. So it was a really sad breakup. And again, I don't, I don't think I spent the money to self-sabotage. I think I was just an idiot. But that relationship ending was exactly a result of the pain I was still carrying around from Steve and Matt. Fast forward, uh, at that point, I'm still broke. Uh, now yeah. I'm single. So I moved to Mexico to become a missionary. All the way back to what made me want to be a firefighter was all those experiences I'd had as a child in Mexico. So I moved to Mexico, become a missionary. I'm working with a nonprofit called YWAM, Youth with a Mission. And my job there was to build houses for homeless families. So I'm literally like employed by a nonprofit and my job is to build houses for homeless families. And my free time, all I did was surf and ended up starting an orphanage down there that I still have to this day. We have 23 kids at the orphanage right now. And that was just accident, or I guess it wasn't. I mean, I think everything happens for a reason, but it wasn't, I didn't go down there to start an orphanage. Yeah, of course, of course. I saw the need and I did something about it. And so now I'm down there, I'm building houses for homeless families, surfing and taking care of orphans. And over time, it gave me complete healing. Uh, it wasn't a particular Bible verse, a particular conversation, a quote, or some inspirational song. It was just being immersed in serving others somehow healed me. I went down there with no expectations and I'm giving to people that could never in a million years ever pay me back for what I'm doing. I'm just serving selflessly. And mm -hmm. for some reason that gave me healing. Of course, I still miss Steve and Matt, all of that, but I wasn't uh, paralyzed to that anymore. Came back to America. I've been gone 10 months. That girl that dumped me, I didn't know she had a boyfriend. I didn't know what her situation was, but I didn't care. I had left my vehicle at my dad's house. So I had, I had you know, my Escalinaut stuff, I had already gotten rid of, but I did have a car. I left that mm -hmm. at my parents' house the whole time I lived in Mexico. Um, I had a storage unit of really nice stuff that I had acquired when I had my money, uh, like goose down couches, just stupid stuff, a 24-year-old with money <laughs> to buy. Um, I sold all of that. I sold my car, I sold everything. And I bought this girl a ring and I worked it out and I surprised her and I asked her to marry me. And so this is my ex-girlfriend that could have a boyfriend. It's been 10 months. I didn't care. Uh, I asked her to marry me and I told her, we've already dated for two years. I know who you are. I don't need to date you anymore. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you marry me? And luckily... Uh, she said, yes. And so that's I now my wife that. to this day, which is really cool. And so uh, she said, yes. Now, not only am I broke, I don't even have a car uh, because I sold <laughs> it for sold a wedding. You sold all your stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. So, so she, uh, she wanted to get married right away. We got married four and a half months later. And having just moved home from Mexico as a missionary, there was no point of me going and getting a term, you know, temporary rental for four months. So I'm back living at my parents' house. Uh, a, because I didn't have the financial means to move out. But then B, I knew I'd be moving in with my wife in four and a half months. We didn't want to live together before marriage. We wanted to wait until marriage because I have buddies that lived with their girlfriends, got married, and they're like, dude, marriage is like no different. Nothing changed. I was like, that's really sad. I want everything to change. So, so long story short, I'm now at my parents' house borrowing my dad's car. The only thing I own are the clothes that I didn't sell, sold all my possessions that was in a storage unit, sold my car for her ring, and now I've got four and a half months to get ready to support a wife. And so I went in straight gangster, you know, entrepreneur <laughs> mode and uh, fast forward 20 months after that, quote unquote, on paper was a millionaire. Uh, so was a missionary living in Mexico 20 months later, crossed the net worth of a million dollars. Oh, and, and in the same year made my first seven figures personally. So my dad and I were running a seven figure fix and flip business, but we were 50, 50 partners. My take home would be half million, whatever. Uh, this was the first time that I was personally bringing home over a million a year too. And so- um, that was the beginning of my comeback and uh, fast, you know, that was eight years ago. Fast forward, here we are. Yeah. And what did you get into in those 20 months? 
back to my fix and flip business. Uh, I just tripled down on that. I invested in some coaching because I realized, you know, 2005 through eight, it was just right place, right time. But actually understanding what the business of real estate investing is, I didn't know. So I invested in some coaching um, and then actually applied what I'd learned, invested in some relationships and uh, built that back up. Um, and then some other side opportunities, some joint venture partnerships came up that were incredibly lucrative. Uh, and then later on, a few years later, had the opportunity to be contracted with a company that would pay me a lot of money to travel and speak about real estate investing on their behalf. And what was cool about that money is I was working for it. Of course, I was showing up and speaking, but there was no product or service that came with it. It was just wire transfer. So fly to a city, speak, fly home, huge wire transfer, no salaries, no staffing, nothing would come. It was just my money. Yeah. And yeah, so of my businesses that were now crushing it with also, with also that money that just kind of sprinkles into the bank account with, without, because you know what I'm saying. If, if, if I, um, if I'm a, a clothing manufacturer and I, and I sell a t-shirt, well, there's actual cost of the t-shirt. Yep. I've got staff yep. speaking fees was just wire transfers into my account. So that really accelerated my ability to then not be a dumbass this time and spend it all like last time, but to invest it, which is how my net worth increased so quickly. Yep. Um, and so that, that was it. I just put my head down, worked in my real estate business as a result of a pretty incredible comeback, caught some attention and people said, do you want to go teach what you did and we'll pay you for it? I was like, sure. And then uh, eventually they started Thrive in 2015, uh, which uh, the Thrive brand alone did 3.2 million last year. I'm proud to announce that's not net profit, that's revenue. Uh, yeah. But, but the, the, that's none of my other business. That's just the Thrive brand did 3 million last year, which is cool. Um, that's 2019, by the way, depending on when everyone's listening to this, it did 3 million and maybe five this year. We'll see. Uh, I have my marketing agency. I have uh, yeah, I have some other businesses now too. And uh, that's it. Would you mind explaining what Thrive is? Because I love what you've done with that community and what you've done just in general. So would you mind explaining what that is, what Thrive is? Yeah, so Thrive started in 2015 as just a three-day business conference. Um, there Now there's everybody's got a conference, but back then there weren't that many. Um, and the only ones that I saw out there were these just ridiculous pitch fests. You pay all this money to go and nobody teaches anything. They just dangle carrots and then sell you their courses or their programs or their whatever the heck. And I was just like, dude, this whole thing's a big scam. Like, I want to get better at business and I can't go anywhere without someone trying to sell me 800 grand worth of nonsense. How do I just get someone to teach me? So I was like, screw it. I'm just going to create the event that does it. I'm going to sit in my own audience and listen to my own speakers. <laughs> and so, um, so that was part of the initial reason why I went with the event model. Uh, what I wanted to communicate is what I learned in Mexico while I was down there taking care of the orphanage. I ran out of money and I was thinking about starting a nonprofit, come and finding individuals like yourself that have financial means and good hearts and asking you to support me financially. Hey bro, I know you're doing well. Uh, do you mind, you know, John, a hundred bucks a month, every month, and I get 30 people like you to do that? Cool, now I'm, I can live. Uh, but the entrepreneur in me, this is while I was in Mexico, the entrepreneur in me, because remember I had a few years of big, big uh, yep. income, yep. was like, dude, I don't wanna go ask people to just give me money, that's weird. What I wanna do instead is I wanna just build businesses that fund my philanthropic adventures. And so, I did. Um, and Tom's shoes was blowing up. This is like 2011. That's when they were really, really grabbing a lot of market share and a lot of attention. And I loved his model. Blake Mikowski, the founder of Tom said, for every pair of shoes we sell, we're going to give a pair away and we're going to bake the cost of that second pair of shoes. We're giving mm. away into the cost of the pairs that the consumers are buying. So it's no real money out of his pocket. But as he scales and grows that business, more and more people around the world are benefiting. 
And I was like, brilliant. That's what I want to do. For every time I sell a house, I'm going to build a house and give a house away in Mexico, which is what we Man, do. Man, I love that. And so I started doing that and I realized that you can buy happiness. A lot of people out there, they say money can't buy happiness. They have no idea what they're talking about. Um, money can buy happiness. You just don't find it at Nordstrom's. Go feed a starving child. Go take money. Don't, don't just donate to the Red Cross because there's no emotional connection there. You don't know where the money's going. Take, see a starving homeless child and pull money out of your wallet and go buy some groceries. And then that kid that's there begging, because everyone's like, oh, don't give money to homeless. They're just going to go buy drugs. Okay, cool. Then why don't you go to the grocery store and buy actual items, food items, get them socks, deodorant, toothbrush, toothpaste, uh, non-perishables like canned tunas, things like that. And then maybe even a few perishables like apples, bananas, some sandwiches, go buy $50 worth of groceries, find that homeless person that you don't want to be charitable to because you're afraid they're going to buy drugs and give them groceries that will last them the next three to four days. And if you leave that exchange feeling sad, something's broken in you. You're going to feel happy. So guess what you just did? You bought your happiness. So when they say money can't buy happiness, First of all, poverty can't buy anything. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Money absolutely can buy happiness if you're just using it in the right way. And I got obsessed. And that's where I started to continue to get healing for Stephen Matt as I was buying my happiness by working my ass off, making money and then, you know, impacting people's lives with it. And so I was like, all right, I want to get better at business and I want to teach the business model I've got. Screw it, I'm going to throw an event. And so for the very first Thrive, we had Gary Vaynerchuk show up. We had Robert Hershevec from Shark Tank. We had all these incredible thought leading entrepreneurs show up. We had 442, I believe it was, or 440 attendees that very first year. And that was the birth of Thrive. It was going to be just a one-off. Then the testimonials started pouring in of all the people that said their lives have been changed forever. And just like, it was really cool and really rewarding. So my wife and I were like, all right, let's do it one more time. That was Thrive 2. <laughs> for that one, you know, Grant Cardone showed up, Jack Canfield, Chicken Soup for the Soul, like just another round of amazing speakers. And same thing happened. Lives were changed, like crazy things, like things you would never expect. People that were like going to get a divorce decided to stay married because they have purpose in their life now. People that were suicidal decided to live, like just really emotional cheer jerking letters were being sent to us or messages through Facebook and Instagram of people that had attended our event, letting Sonia, my wife and I know how our event completely changed their lives. And we're like, damn now, now like how can we stop this? Like literally people that might have actually gone through with suicide are going to live. Let's keep going. So we're about to do the sixth thrive this coming May 1st, 2nd and 3rd. And, uh, you know, we're just going to keep going as long as That's people awesome. keep showing up. It's now grown to thousands of people showing up. And uh, yeah. it's the only event I know of that has the caliber of speakers it has with nothing for sale uh, around the you know, the principles of making money matter. And, and that's running yes. for-purpose businesses and, and saying, hey, you know, unapologetically live your dream life. I'm, I live in my dream home. I'm currently recording this podcast from my movie theater, as you might've noticed over my shoulder. Um, <laughs> the only reason I'm in this movie theater is it's, it's soundproof and uh, there's a lot of noise going on out in my house and in my office. My employees are grinding. So long story short, I have a beautiful home. I drive yeah. all my dream cars, but that's not my identity. Those are just byproduct of being, you know, of taking action. Uh, why I do what I do is about the impact. And so uh, you know, that's what we teach at Thrive. You can't make money matter unless you know how to make money. So we yeah. bring in amazing entrepreneurs to teach you how to make money and then teach you the business model of becoming a for-purpose entity and making your money matter. And then, you know, I, I always challenge people. I would never presume to tell you what to do with your money, but I challenge you, try supporting someone or something in some way with your business. And if, and if you're not happy, like I'll give you your money back at Thrive. 
Man, I love that. Now, did Gary Vandercheck just come to you? He found out you were doing a three-day event and go like, hey, Cole, I want to be a speaker at your conference because you did a whole hustle with like getting everybody on yeah, stage at that first um, event. No, so, so I was friends at that point with Lewis House. And, you know, when people hear the story of how I put Thrive together and built my network, they always say, oh, it's because you knew so-and-so. Dude, I didn't know anybody. So back in 2010, right before I became a missionary, as, as a last ditch effort of like trying to save my finances and sanity, I went to an internet marketing event. I was like, real estate doesn't work. I'm losing everything. I'm literally about to go bankrupt. What's the internet about? Let's go to this internet marketing event. And sure enough, Lewis House is on stage selling a $197 LinkedIn influence. I think it was called course on how to use LinkedIn to make money. And so I bought his course and I introduced myself to him and somehow I finagled his email address and we kind of loosely stayed in touch Fast forward 2014, I had seen how he had exploded and how he went from a nobody that was on the stage to like having 100,000 followers on Instagram, whatever it was. So I reached out to him and I was like, bro, um, I don't know if you remember me. Coincidentally, he did. I was like, let's talk. Long story short, he, he offered to coach me for $6,000 for 90 days, two grand a month. And I said, the only way that I'll say yes is if you let our first session be in person. He said, done. I drove up to Hollywood where he lived. We ate at Hugo's. We ate breakfast. He gave me my first session right there. I handed him a $6,000 cashier check. And over that mentorship where I paid for his attention, we became mm -hmm. friends. Fast forward another 18 months, I'm doing Thrive. I asked him to speak. He said, yes. I said, you've had Gary Vaynerchuk on your podcast twice now. Could you ever <laughs> do an introduction to like his handler, his personal assistant or his agent or like whatever the role is of the person I needed to talk to. And at that point it was a dude named Matt. And so he gave me Matt's contact, reached out, Matt got me in touch with Gary. I had a five minute phone call of Gary of pitching him of this vision I had of teaching entrepreneurs, to use their businesses to change the world. And Gary said, I'd love to be a part of it. And then once I had Gary, I went straight cold to Robert Hershevik's <laughs> website where if you go to robertherschevec.com, I don't know if it's still there, but it was like, book me to speak. So I clicked it, filled out the form, someone from his team, same thing, hardcore audit process. I had to send them my entity corporate um, uh, articles of incorporation. Like they audited the hell out of me and I somehow made it and I had him say yes. And I had to pay for him, of course. So now that I had Gary Vee and Robert Hershevec, I then got about 200 requests from speakers <laughs> to speak at Thrive. Oh, so sorry. I, I also had Lewis House. I had Lewis House, yeah. Robert Hershevec, Gary Vaynerchuk, and then a different friend that I'd picked up along the way, uh, John Lee Dumas, who's the host of Entrepreneur on Fire. And those four, as soon as it made the website, I got literally, I'm not kidding you, at least 100 to 150 requests. And now for Thrive, I get about 600 requests a year of people to speak there. And so that was the beginning. And so people are like, oh, you're so lucky. Dude, I showed up to an event. I bought yep. Lewis's course and I wasn't a yep. douchebag. I was someone that he enjoyed talking to. I asked him for a referral to Gary and Gary, it wasn't a slam dunk. He wanted to hear what my, what I was going to do at this event. And because mm -hmm. he believed in and supported my ideas, he took a leap of faith and said, yeah, I'll come. Even though it was an unproven concept, first year event. Um, and uh, that's, that's all I did. And then once yeah. that happened, the next year, I reached out to people like Grant Cardone. I was like, dude, look who I had last year, Gary Vee and Robert Hirsch, blah, 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 blah. So then he's like, screw it, I'll come. And then by the third Thrive, after I'd had like the speaker lineup that I'd had those several years, by Thrive 3, it was pretty easy to start getting those big names. Les Brown came to Thrive 3, Eric Thomas, forget all who it was. And then, and then now it's just like shooting a couple of texts. That's, that's amazing, man. That is so cool. And, and I think the thing that's important, you said it earlier, is you paid for attention. 
Like totally. you paid to get mentored by Lewis. Not only that though, you didn't stop there. You said, Hey, first session, I'm willing to do it. But first session, I want to meet you face to face. I want to be able to have lunch or dinner or whatever it was face to face. And we do it that way. And that's what built the relationship. And that's totally. like the key. And to be clear, because then, you know, I did pay 6,000 and for, this is about making dreams manifest in reality. Be clear. I spent $197 with Lewis the first time to be in his sphere of influence. And now Lewis is huge and has like a gazillion followers and you probably wouldn't be able, actually, I know for a fact he doesn't even offer coaching anymore. I think I was one of his last, I always joke and say I was such a horrible student that you quit coaching after me. <laughs> um, but like, there's nothing special about my story. I had a dream and it came true and, and, it's, and it's working, but it, it, it took me six years in 2010 or five years in 2010 i paid 200 bucks for lewis's course then i and i was broke remember everybody who's listening to this right now that was right before i became a missionary that was like the last personal development investment i made was giving lewis those 200 dollars. it was a lot of money to me at that time because i just lost everything in the recession mm. it was all i had but i then four, four years later in 2014 had quote unquote become a millionaire and all that stuff. So then I paid six grand and I could afford it, but that was four years later. And then yes, to your point, uh, he made me come to him. It's coincidental that I live in Southern California, but even if I live in New York, I would have bought a flight to make sure that our first meeting was in person because I wanted to build that friendship. And then it was him being willing to introduce me to guys like Gary that I built the network eventually that I have here today. And so everybody wants the shortcut, the easy push a button, you know, boom, you're rich or your network's grown. I've built my network now over the last 10 years, starting with spending 200 bucks, the last 200 I had on Lewis House, fast forward to today, and I have an incredible network. Um, you know, I, I just sat down at a meeting with someone who's worth like 800 and some odd million dollars. And we're talking about uh, doing a deal together in real estate because he's too rich to spend any time uh, looking for deals. And I have an entire company that does that and I have nowhere near the money he does. So collaborate, like just crazy stuff happens now, but I was willing to eat crap and do what I had to do at the time to get to where I'm at today. That Cole, that is, you just dropped some fire. Like dream catchers go back and re-listen to that part. Like that, that's valuable. Cause if you look at the story and that's the reason why I want to call on this show and on this episode, if you listen to his story, it hasn't been an easy road ever but he's constantly kept his head on his shoulders and made sure, you know what, I'm going to figure out a way to make this happen. Even when he's spending the last 200 bucks in his pocket. Totally. Goal, last two questions for you, man. Um, first off, obviously all of our dream catchers need to go and follow you. They need to get to the next thrive event. They need to see your journey, your family, everything that you show and inspire. Where's the best place for them to be able to find you? Uh, for me personally, Instagram at Cole Hatter. Um, I mean, it's at Cole Hatter on all the social media platforms. So if you want to, like you just said, see the family and all that stuff, that's the best place to go. As far as me uh, in business, attendthrive.com. That's, that's really the website that everyone goes and checks out. And that's, that's the Thrive event. So if you want to see what I'm up to, Cole Hatter, uh, at Cole Hatter, excuse me, if you want to uh, check out what we're creating and the movement that we're, we're a part of, it's attendthrive.com. Awesome. And Dreamcatchers, that will all be in the show notes. So you'll be able to find that. Uh, Cole, last question for you. If you were to bump into yourself 10 years younger and you were able to give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would that be? 
it's funny because everything we were just talking about was exactly 10 years ago, the Lewis house story and stuff. So I remember exactly where it was 10 years ago. Um, I would just say, trust the process and don't give up. And um, it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be worth it. That's it. Just, just trust your gut, trust your intuition, be willing to go through the worst pain financially ever, mentally ever, but it is so going to be worth it in the end. Dude. Cole, I am so thankful for your time. Like the value you brought into my own life, man, I really appreciate you being on the show, but I know you're going to bring so much value to our dream catchers as well. So I just want to say thank you again for your time today. Of course, man. Appreciate being here. Awesome.